Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess. Today's guest is columnist, movie reviewer, radio and television personality, Richard Roper. Good morning, Rich. I love that guy. Oh, hi, Elizabeth. <laughs> it's so good to see you and talk to you again. Let's start with the reason I know you. Your column is in the Chicago Sun-Times. You began working there in 1997, and you write about politics, media, and entertainment. When you start writing a column, do you ever filter and think, I better not say that, or do you just kind of put it out there and assume your editor will trust you? I think it's a little of both, you know, especially... Especially in recent times, you got to be a little bit careful. You, you know, I hate to say this, but you do sometimes really think, okay, how is this going to play? Is this going to offend somebody? But I, I think the reason I got the column in the first place was, like you, I do not shy away from speaking my mind. So, and that's what they encourage. So, I've been really lucky at the Sun Times over the years. I've actually actually had some really great editors. So, I kind of feel like, you know what? I'll throw it out there, and then if they think it's okay. That's cool. And I, I, I can tell you this too, Elizabeth, I've never had them pull a column or refuse to run a column. They might say, hey, listen, you know, you might want to think about rephrasing this or phrasing this in a different way, but never just saying, hey, we're not running this. Do you ever go back and reread them and cringe because it wasn't written well or because you've changed your opinion? The reason I don't go back almost ever anymore is because I will cringe. Sometimes it's the writing, but usually it's the the viewpoint I had. Like anybody else, you look back and you think, well, you know, remember when I was young and stupid, I was young and stupid. People use it as an excuse. And I've been using that up until I think the mid 40s and I can't use it anymore. But yeah, there's sometimes I look back and I go, did you really? I guess you felt that way at the time. So it's, it's, it's less the writing than the point of view I took sometimes where I do cringe. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, people say, why don't you put out a collection of your columns? I'm like, you know, they probably were of their time and should stay in that time. Most people, I would say, would you say know you because you're the guy from TV who reviewed movies with Roger Ebert? Definitely outside the Chicago area. You know, it's funny because like when I'm in, in the city in Chicago and, you know, general area in the suburbs, People will mention, you know, whether it's radio or, you know, non-movie stuff. But obviously, outside of Chicago, you know, I was lucky enough. That show was, I think, in about 200, basically every market in, in North America, not just in the States. So that, that to this day, you know, people will mention it. You know, that was one of the great things about doing the show. Primarily, it was a chance to work with Roger Ebert and doing the show. But it also gave me much more exposure. So if I wanted to write a book about a non-movie topic or write a column about a non-movie topic, I had a wider audience. Some of the people that listen to this podcast are much younger and don't remember Gene Siskel. So let me just walk it back a little bit. You were one of 30 guest hosts that went in with Roger Ebert, sort of auditioned, and you had incredible chemistry. Talk about your chemistry with Roger. What made that relationship so special? Sure, that's that's a great way to to kind of get into all of that. Yeah, for people who don't know, you know, Siskel and Ebert obviously had been a famous duo for 25 years, and then Gene passed away. Gosh, he was only in his early 50s. Roger was also at the time, and obviously was going to continue doing the show in some iteration. So they decided to start bringing in guest critics, mostly from around the country. And I had known him because we both worked at the Chicago Sun-Times and you know, uh, continued to do so uh, for many years after. So when he asked me to be a, you know, a guest critic on the show, I think one of the reasons we did have that chemistry was... I didn't think of it as an audition. Everybody else, there were some great film critics on there, but if you know, if I went back and looked at the some of the shows, some of them were so nervous because they were looking at it like this could be the break of a lifetime. I was looking at it like I can't believe I get to sit on this balcony set. It was like being at the bar at Cheers, you know, or in Central Perk, and I just had fun. So I immediately, and, and I also knew him, so I wasn't afraid to give it back to him. And that's what Roger was looking for. 
a lot of the other critics were asking, acting like they were guests on the Roger Ebert show. So he'd say, well, I don't think that's true. And they'd say, well, you're probably right. You're Roger Ebert. Well, he doesn't want that. He wants them to say, are you out of your mind? Why do you not love this film? So that's how we really kind of found that chemistry early on. Thank you for keeping Ebert Fest relevant and continuing and going on in Champagne. Do you get any input in picking the movies, or is that mostly his widow, Chaz? Uh, Chaz, you know, and, and the, a lot of the folks that are based here in Champagne, you know, put together the whole program. But, like, for example, this year I did get to have some input, and they wanted to kind of spotlight some of the films that Roger and I both loved. So uh, Sideways uh, with Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church and uh, Almost Famous, which are uh, both uh, playing the same day, back-to-back, as, as you will. Those are both my choices because I, I remember, how, first of all, I loved both of them, but I remember how much Roger loved them as well. Bound? Bound is a great yeah, movie. Yeah, those, that was all the festival. And, you know, Bound, the Wachowski siblings did that before they did uh, the Matrix movies, of course. And Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon, you know, both great. I know Jennifer Tilly, actually, talk about knowing people through different worlds, because she's a poker player. She loves to play poker, which I do as well. And we've actually played on some tele, in some televised tournaments. We've been in strange cities together, Albany, New York, because there's a casino there, obviously Vegas. And I can tell you this because, you know, Jennifer always has that reputation because she's got the squeaky voice of being this kind of bimbo. She's one of the smartest, funniest, warmest people you will ever know. And playing poker with her is like being at a great dinner party for six hours. She goes around the table, gets to know everybody if she's never met them before. And then we actually have done some things. We actually did a TV special a couple of years ago where we talked about gambling movies and specifically poker movies together and talk about someone who could be a great film critic too. She's great. In a second, I'm going to ask you about more celebrities. But first, I want to talk about the fact that you're a book author. You've written books ranging in topics from movies to urban legends, conspiracy theories, and the Chicago White Sox. Mm -hmm. They say right what you know. Of course you know the Sox. (laughs) Why urban legends or conspiracy theories? What compelled you to write a book about those? You know, it's funny because the same thing, Elizabeth. I was always fascinated by, you know, hoaxes and urban legends. And I'm talking about pre-internet. So I wrote a lot of columns about them. And I always get a huge amount of reaction, half from people saying, I'm so glad you debunked this conspiracy theory. And the other half, I'm saying, I can't believe you're part of the Illuminati and you're part of the conspiracy theory because how do you not know that the moon landing was faked? So I wrote three books on various urban legends and conspiracy theories. And about a year ago, I started working on another one. And then I realized, I hate to say this, but it was a futile, it was going to be a futile endeavor because as you can see on Twitter or any other social media now, the people who believe this stuff believe this stuff and the people who don't, don't. And I don't think I can change anyone's minds anymore. <laughs> so the Earth's not flat. Yeah, I mean, that was, the, that was actually the launching point. I go, I couldn't believe I was seeing like NBA all-stars and sometimes otherwise educated people saying they were sure the Earth was flat. And I was going to start with that. And then I realized, I think I'll just, I don't think, I don't know if this book will do well because I think people will just get mad. I will say though, I have an idea for a reality show. And I think it would be the greatest reality show of all time. Like The Amazing Race. I want to get together like 10 teams of two who are all flat earthers. And it's going to be a $10 million prize for the first team to reach the edge of the flat earth. That's genius. Wouldn't that be great? And then we could just, and we'll stay with them and they'll just keep going. And at some point they're going to lose their minds or they're going to have to say, I guess the earth isn't flat because if it's flat, that means you'd fall off at the end, right? And we would say, we'll give you all the resources you need to get to the end of the earth. 
What about an anti-vaxxer reality show oh where you put people that refuse to get immunizations in a room with a bunch of measles and mumps people? Can we? Oh my gosh, you just gave me a whole bunch of ideas. That's another great one too. Yeah, and then when you read about like people now, you know, saying they're going to deliberately expose their children to these, you know, things that have been cured, essentially, and I'm like, do you want to try to see if they can get polio and bring that back mm-hmm. too? I'll get as worked up as anybody else and start going. I can't believe the president said this or. The anti-vaxxer said that. And then I realized, I hate to use that stay in your lane thing, but I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to tweet about movies for about a week and a half now because anything else, you just hear back from people who are just nuts, quite frankly. They're crazy. Mm-hmm. And But also, you know, the, the, the unfortunate thing is so few people, I think on either side, will ever say, you know what? You make a great point. I never thought of it that way. We used to have more of that, I think, when we had these discussions. And now it's just, if they agree with you, you're a genius. And if they disagree with you, you're an idiot. Thank you, Fox News, for yeah. that. I love listening to you as a radio host on WLS. Uh, you were voted best columnist in Illinois by the Associated Press on numerous occasions. You've won all these awards. However, I read online comments about you, and some can be brutal. How can you separate when people say you're an idiot for not liking a movie based on just simply you're an idiot? You know, I'm like everybody else. It took me a while to get there. And I, I, one of the things I love doing, because I had a lot of really good mentors when I was coming up in the business, radio, TV people, newspaper people, and the young people that work for me, whether they're interns or family friends or, you know, relatively new in the business, especially, you know, women who get it much more than men do about their looks to this day. And I know, you know, young people on TV and stuff. And I tell them, I know it's hard, but first of all, you shouldn't even read the comments, but whatever you do, don't respond because that's all they want. So I am honestly, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but my inbox at the Sun-Times probably has 60,000 unread messages and I'll, I'll try to go through them. But if anything is just starting off by telling me how much I suck or something, it's, it's so easy for me to hit delete. I don't, I, cause I don't care. I never read the comments under anything I've written. And even on Twitter, if someone starts, you know, I don't care if they say, Hey man, I love you, but you're completely dead wrong about this movie. I loved it. I can't believe you. You know that's fine. You know, give me a give me a hard time. But isn't the minute it gets into anything personal or just name calling, the great thing about Twitter is the mute. Now, you know, because if you block them, they're oh look, Richard Rubber blocked me. I got to him. I got to him. You mute them, and you know, same thing with my email. You know, there are these devices where it'll go straight to trash, but they don't know it did. Right. So it's let them go and rant away. And, you know, to me, it's like life is just too short to start getting bogged down in that. It's funny you mention that, too, because even on, on Facebook, once in a while, like one of my sisters will say to me, you know, you got to go on your, because I don't go on the page all that often. A lot of times I'm just posting links and stuff. And they'll say, you got to get on your page and clean up. Because someone will say something about a post I did about a movie. And then someone underneath, like a Captain Marvel, for example, you know, and Brie Larson and some people for some reason decided that that was anti-male because Captain Marvel was a woman, which is, no, that's more than half the population. So guess what? Um, so I loved the movie. And then someone underneath it said, I loved the movie. And then someone else started saying, yeah, well, you, you loved it because it's anti-Trump. And then all of a sudden, underneath my, my movie review, all these people were yelling at each other about politics. And I just deleted all that because I'm like, I didn't ask you guys to come here and scream at each other. Trump has started it. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> if I may give you shit, you were once named as one of People Magazine's most eligible bachelors. Did someone nominate you for that? And was there a cheesy photo shoot of you looking yes. sexy? Yes. The, all, of, all of those things. Well, what I said at the time was, you know, 
they, they said eligible. I was also eligible for the NBA draft this year, but nobody picked me, right? And it, it's so funny, Elizabeth, that you mentioned it because I recently moved and I cleaned out a storage space that I had stuff, you know, popped in for literally decades. And I found a couple of hard copies of that People magazine. And it's funny because on the cover, it's, I mean, it's like Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Josh Hartnett, all these guys who have, you know, I'm the only one that, has ne- that never got married out of it. <laughs> these guys all at least married once or twice. And I'll never forget this photo shoot. They did this photo shoot in Chicago and Access Hollywood was there covering it live. And it was, it gave me a glimpse into like the life of an actor and realized, oh my God, I would hate this so much. Like this is, they had, I'm not kidding you, they must have had 20 different outfits, including like the shoes. And I'm like, are you guys going to be showing my shoes? And it was a lot of stuff that I would never wear. I think in the photo, I'm wearing like a pink shirt and a brown leather jacket that Brad Pitt would look amazing in. But you have to be Brad Pitt because you look, you know, like, I mean, you have to be like perfect looking. If not, you look like an idiot. And what did you end up wearing for the photo? Actually, there were some things, honestly. I said, look, guys, I'm not, I'm not going to wear this because it's Miami Vice off the air and I'm in Chicago. So I think I just ended up wearing a leather jacket. And I mean, they couldn't have been nicer, but it's the same thing, too. Like, I think that that photo session lasted almost the whole day. And there's just a stupid picture of me holding a box of popcorn which every photographer has wanted me to do for a photo shoot for the last 20 years. Here's something clever. You're a movie guy, so hold a box of popcorn. I'm like, actually, it'd be more accurate if I were holding a glass of Pinot Noir because you can get wine at most of the theaters this day, these days, right? Oh, that's funny. Well, here comes the part of I have to ask where I ask you things you may not want to answer oh, yeah. them. You have access to celebrities, so you go to Oscar parties. Just a few questions. You were on with Kelly Ripa. Is she sweet or a bitch? She was great to me. Um, I, you know, and I know Kelly, yeah, a lot of people are like, how come the co-hosts keep flipping every few years? Uh, the bond I have with Kelly Ripa, the same summer where Disney hired me to be Roger Ebert's co-host, Disney hired Kelly to be Kathy Lee's successor, like uh, within a week. So we were doing a lot of like press at the same time. We'd see each other. She wrote me like a lovely note saying, you know, wow, we're both about to go off on this cool journey and everything. So she's always been great to me. Okay. What about Bill O'Reilly? You were on the O'Reilly factor. Is he as much of a douche as he comes off? You know, it's funny because you mentioned Fox News. And if you go back 10 years, maybe, I think really basically pre-Obama, there were times when Fox News was, I don't want to say they were fair and balanced. They were always right leaning, but much more fair. Like O'Reilly, I would go on his show and he, one thing I'd always say about him was he would give me time to give it back to him. You know, I, and he'd call me a pinhead, liberal pinhead, and I would lay him out. And he used to do a thing called the most ridiculous person of the week or something like that. He once called himself that because I had called him out on something. And the next day he was like, well, I looked it up and Roper was right. So he wasn't, I mean, he was already bombastic and had this huge ego. I can honestly say I'd never heard about all the stuff that apparently went on to the tune of $32 million. So I had never heard that, but I wasn't around there that much. But I would I even went on Fox and Friends. It was a completely different show than it is now. It was a fun morning show. Uh, once they turned and, you know, just became a propaganda machine for the right. I haven't gone on any of those. You were on Entourage. Yes, I played me. You reviewed a, a fictitious movie, right? Yes, uh, the Vinny Chase character, who was a movie star, uh, Adrian Grenier, Grenier played him, had done a movie called Medellin, which is funny because the mo- movie was later done on that. And the other funny thing is, you know, he played Aquaman on Entourage. They had a whole arc where James Cameron was, was going to make Aquaman. Everyone thought it was the dumbest thing ever. It became a huge hit. Um, but I was on a, a season. The arc was like Vinny's character was hitting rock bottom. He had done Medellin and it was terrible. So they had me review it. 
And it was funny because the, the, the scriptwriter sent me the two or three pages of the dialogue where I was reviewing the movie. And I wrote back to him and said, I would be much meaner than this. And they go, hey, have at it. So I wrote all my own lines. And it's so funny because every once in a while, some will be airing or something, and I get a royalty check for like $2.62 for my role as me. What about Jeremy Piven? Was he nice? Yeah. And then there was another guy that you know I know has a, you know, a checkered reputation. And there's a scene where he goes off on me, which is hilarious. But he's a local guy, and like I say, local Evanston, you know, and I know it's, you know, for people who don't know his family, they have a theater company, and, you know, I, I've done fundraisers with his family and stuff, so he, you know, he actually sent me a, a really nice note saying, you know, thanks for taking it in the spirit, you know, the script was in. One more question about uh, Hollywood actors and actresses. We know Jeremy Renner, Tom Cruise, we know they're short. Huh. Most Hollywood actresses are, are even thinner, I mean, just because the camera adds <laughs> yeah. weight. Can you give me something, somebody who you met and thought, wow, you really are tiny or thin or... Well, you know what? I can actually, I'll give you the opposite because what, what, what's more surprising to me, because yeah, I mean, I met Tom Cruise several times and he's he's a small man. You know, he's in great shape and he's shockingly preserved, he, you know, which is weird because I don't know if he's had work done or if he's just, you know, I think his energy just keeps him going all the time. But the surprising thing to me, Elizabeth, is when I meet some of these actors and they're bigger than you think. For like, for example, Ben Affleck, I mentioned, is like 6'3". You know, he's a big guy. And I just recently spent some time uh, with Zachary Levi, who's in this movie called Shazam that's out now. So he's a terrific actor. Um, so he gets cast in Shazam, which is the story of a 14-year-old boy who, you know, has a magical ability, and then he turns into a 35-year-old hunky superhero, and Zachary Levi plays the 35-year-old hunky superhero. And I'd seen pictures of him and seen him on TV, and he's a you know, decent-looking, amiable type of guy, kind of a, I thought, more like a Tom Hanks type. And in person, he's like this stud. He's like 6'4". Yeah, and he got all pumped and built and everything, you know, he got built up for, for the movie role. But I was shocked, like when he came to Chicago and we spent, you know, a few hours together. He's a super, super nice guy, I would say as well. But like he was, if you didn't know who he was, you'd go, "Oh, that must—he's a linebacker on the Bears." You know, I was surprised at how big he was. And then you know, you do see the, there are some, you know, more than a few actresses because if they're not five one or five two, like Scarlett Johansson is maybe five two, they're seven feet tall. Nicole Kidman is is super tall. Jessica Chastain is probably five eight or five nine there, so that's why you sometimes don't you don't see like certain actresses next to each other. Like sometimes with their heels, they're taller than I am. Tell me, Sam Rockwell, he's my heart. Tell me, he's kind of tall. No, he's not, okay. but he's great. I think he's great. He's just in a movie called The Best of Enemies with Taraji P. Henson, and it's based on a true story. She's a civil rights activist, and he's a, the local Klan leader in Durham, North Carolina, in 1971, who actually became best friends in real life. And, you know, he kind of played the same role in Three Billboards. And I'm like, as far as I know, Sam Rockwell is the kindest, you know, sweetest man. But, boy, can he play a redneck racist where you're just like, God, you ha I hate you so much right now. He's a great actor. He really is. Um, well, he played George, he played W, right, in uh, Vice. He can't, I think the only reason he didn't win the Oscar, because he had just won the year before for Three Billboards. But what, he, what I thought was so cool about it was he nailed... You know, the, the parts about W that are infuriating, that, you know, good old boy and maybe not the sharpest tool in the shed, but also the 
charisma and likability of him where you know if you met him even if you hated what he did you know in terms of the Iraq war or whatever politically that you'd end up going how what a nice guy I'd, I'd go see a baseball game with W it's, you know he's handing Altoids to Michelle Obama you know services they're like buds you know there's some and Rockwell captured that perfectly let's talk about TV for a second in October of 2015 you joined the cast of the Fox Chicago morning TV show you signed off after two years was TV more stressful because people judge you on appearance. If you screw up, people can see it. Or did you like radio better? To answer your question, yeah, it was. And I had done a lot of you know live you know news stuff back in the day. And we should clarify, by the way, Fox Chicago is not Fox News Channel. And I will say to their, although all owned by the same company, I will say to their credit, because sometimes the New York executives would come in, they never told me, don't express your opinion about Trump. Don't, you know. Don't do anything like that. But first of all, yeah, I had to be there at like four in the morning, which is you know rough enough because I have to see movies at night. So I, you know, I'd, be, I'd finish writing reviews at midnight and then have to get up three or four hours later. And you're right. And uh, as you well know too, there's a lot of budget limitations these days. There was no makeup person there in the morning. And you know what? As I'm, I'm the worst. And they bring someone in to show us. And I felt worse for the women who, again, would have to come in an hour early, do their own hair, their own makeup, and then get some, I'll not swear, but some idiot telling them that they don't look great. And it's like, you have no idea. They're literally doing their own stuff. So there's all of that. The other thing that I found very restricting was it's a very fast-paced, very well-produced morning show. And everything has to go so fast because of the attention span of the public. I, they're not wrong. I'm just not that good at doing a two-and-a-half-minute interview or a 90-second movie review. I mean, I would sometimes be in the middle. I would start, and we'd get some you know, some great people would come in, and I'd just start talking to Spike Lee, and I'd be hearing, wrap it up. we got to wrap it up. we got to get the traffic and weather. And I'm like, this format is not for me. That was the main, my main problem was they, they were like, Oh man, you got, you know, Rich, you got, you're heading seven segments this morning. You're going to have 14 minutes on the air. And I'm like, that's one segment on radio, you know, or a podcast as we're finding out here. So I don't know if I'm definitely, as you can tell by the length of this answer, maybe not the right person to do 90 second segments on morning television. What about where you are now? You are, do you some appearances on Ro Khan's show? Yeah, on Ro Khan's show uh, in the afternoons. He, you know, he's got a great afternoon drive show. It's four hours, so I'll come in for two hours, you know, three, two or three times a week. And the fun thing is, yeah, in fact, we've been lucky enough to get some great guests in. And sometimes we'll actually tape the interview so we have more time to, to, to play it over three segments. So for example, last year, Ryan Gosling came in with Damien Chazelle, who was his director from La La Land, and they were doing First Man, the, the Neil Armstrong story, which I thought actually was kind of overlooked. And, you know, Ryan Gosling is as big as a star as they come. He was making the rounds. He was doing the morning television and stuff in Chicago. When he came in to do the radio interviews, we did 35 minutes. And then we, you know, taped it and played it the next day. So I love doing that because we can, you know, and same thing when I do my movie review segments with Roe, we can spend an hour talking about movies and, you know, the controversies behind them or the story behind them. So I still love doing that. One more question before yes. I let you go. Chicago White Sox finally won in 2005. And then immediately after the win, everybody thought, well, what about the Cubs? <laughs> Being a White Sox fan in Chicago, are you just immune to the Cubs' love? And has it died down now the Cubs have finally achieved a win? It's different because there are a lot of Cubs fans who loved the lovable loser thing. And now they're one of the most powerful and wealthy franchises. And, you know, here's the thing, too. I'm a baseball fan, so 
I like going to Wrigley Field because, first of all, they've done an amazing job with the whole area there. And I also just love, I know, and I like a lot of the guys on the Cubs team. Like, I think Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant and the manager, Joe Madden, they're good guys. You know, they're media friendly. Madden's hilarious. He rides his bicycle to games. He does commercials for Binnie's where he's, you know, he has red wine in his post-game press conferences. So if anything, I almost have a little bit of envy, not because the Cubs are the bigger team. They always are going to be the bigger team, but because of the way the franchise is being run. Now the White Sox are finally starting to turn the corner. they got a bunch of young, good players. Uh, I think two or three years they're going to be right there. So I think it's, all, it's fun when both teams are doing well. You know, I'm all for it. But Cubs fans are still kind of like, you know, they can get a little annoying sometimes. <laughs> it's not really about the team so much as the fans. And in fact, you know, Cardinals, Cardinals fans, of course, they'll infiltrate Chicago when the Cards are playing the Cubs. And then I become a Cubs fan really fast because I see all these people walking around in way too much red. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess. Richard Roper, I cannot thank you enough for your time My today. Pleasure. Have a great afternoon. Mm-hmm.